Well, welcome to Nets Course 2, Disciples of the Lord Jesus. This is session 9, entitled Salvation of the Soul. Now in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God is that sword so sharp. In 1 Thessalonians now, we've read in chapter 5, verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, all of our parts. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be set apart so we can be complete, that the man of God may be perfect, completely, completely completed unto every good work. Our whole spirit, soul, and body could be blameless. Verse 18 of chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians says, While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Because we're a three-part being, we're a spiritual being, and God intends us to not be temporal, to not allow the flesh to control our destiny, to control our lives and our walks. But that we would look at the things that are eternal. And if we'll look at the things that are eternal, we'll base our lives on the things that have eternal worth. We'll walk in grace, and it'll be by grace that we stand. In Romans chapter 8, verse 14, we know it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So we need to be led by the Spirit. If we're led by the Spirit then we won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Now, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where it says that the Word of God is sharp and quick and powerful, discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. As I looked at that one day, and I thought of it in light of how the Word interprets itself. Now, we know the word heart can mean various things. It's very important that we would understand it. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, it says to keep or to guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. So it's very important that we would guard our heart. But we need to understand also, scripturally, the heart can mean various things. For instance, it can mean the physical heart, which corresponds to the heart in our body. It can also relate to our personal heart, the seat of our personal life, which would relate to our soul. Or it could relate to the seat of our spiritual life, which would relate to our spirit. And we need to know what it's talking about when it says heart. Now, it's fairly easy when it talks about the physical heart of a person. For instance, if a person were to be killed by an arrow through the heart, it would be speaking about the heart, that physical muscle that keeps the blood pumping. But where we have sometimes a, a difficulty discerning is the spiritual or the soulish heart. And the word heart can mean either one. Now, when we look at the word heart and whether it's spirit or soul, we need to understand in our lives we want the balance, which is the soul should not be allowed to contradict the spirit. This is foundational to everything we do and foundational to the prophetic or deception will occur. In other words, if we go by our feelings, for instance, 
We say, well, I don't feel like God loves me. Yet if you're a child of God, He does love you. So your feelings have lied to you. And even if you feel it in your heart, that would have to be your soul. It would have to be in your mind. I don't feel like God is here. I don't feel like He'll hear me if I pray. I don't feel like He's listening to me. And even if that comes from your depth, that couldn't come from the Spirit, that seed which is in you. Even if you say it from your heart, it wouldn't make it true. Now, you may reap the consequences of your belief, which would be unbelief, <laughs> but what you're doing, unfortunately, is you're allowing your soul to contradict the spirit. Now, the heart is the core of your being. It's the foundation of your personal life or the core foundation of your spiritual life. Now, I want to look in Scripture to see how to know and how to rightly divide which it is that we're looking at when we read the word heart. But one day I was reading this in Hebrews chapter 4, and I felt like it just jumped out to me. It's a divider of soul and spirit. Okay, we understand those are different. Joints and marrow, we understand those are different. Discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Thoughts and intents are different. And I began to look, and I thought, wow, thoughts. What category are thoughts in? They're in the mind. They're in the soul. Well, then the intents. God will give us the desires of our heart. Intents, those deeper desires, it's relating to the spirit. That's the purpose or design, the desire. It's the passion that we have. It's what comes out of our gut level. So when it was saying thoughts and intents, he was dividing for us how to discern heart and to divide soul and spirit as we're looking in Scripture at the heart. So when it says in Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself also in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. He's not saying, well, he'll give you the desires of your soul. Your soul many times wants things that aren't of him. But when we delight ourselves in Him, we want what the Spirit wants. So here, when it talks about the desires of the heart, what is that, a thought or an intent? The desires are an intent. So therefore, it's got to be speaking about our spirit. So when it says here, heart, it's speaking about the depth of our spiritual life. And God will give us the desires of our spirit. In Psalm 38, 8 and 9, it says, I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Lord, all my desires before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. The turmoil of my heart, which is that? But it says the desires is before you. This was a prophecy of the Lord. The desires of his heart. He was troubled because of the, the assignment that he'd been given in his spirit. But yet, he chose that over the desires of his soul. We want to look for what comes out of our gut, what comes out of our belly, what comes out of our bowels. He was groaning because of the turmoil. It was from the depth of his being. Psalm 51, beginning in verse 10, says, Create in me a clean heart, 
O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Now, this is a giveaway. <laughs> Because it says, created me a clean heart. So is this talking about spirit or soul? Well, it's talking about spirit because it says, renew a steadfast spirit in me. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy. Now, is joy in the category of spirit or of soul? Well, happiness is in the category of soul because happiness is dependent on what happens around you. But true joy comes out of your inner being. Now, we might say a person is joyful, that might not be saved, but true joy comes from the Spirit, comes from within us. So here, when he talks about creating me a clean heart, it's talking about within him, letting that Spirit cleanse his soul, if you will. Create in him a clean heart. Restore the joy of your salvation. Joy is a purpose or a desire. It doesn't come from your mind. It supersedes the soul, it supersedes the physical category. When Paul and Silas were thrown in prison, they had nothing to be happy about. But yet, they were joyful in the Spirit, and they praised God. Because of the Spirit, their hearts were glad. Now in Psalm 139, 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Is this talking about the Spirit, or is this talking about the soul. He says, know my thoughts, know my anxieties. Do thoughts come from the spirit or they come from the mind? In the category of what we're looking at here, it's talking about the mind. So search my soul, he's saying. Search my thoughts, search me. Judge me now, so I won't be judged later. In Acts chapter 8, when Peter had to speak with Simon the sorcerer, what did he say to him? Verse 21, you have neither part nor portion in this matter, this ministry, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Is that talking about his spirit or his soul? Now remember, he's born again now. It says, repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. So it's got to be talking about his soul. And that's exactly what it was. Simon hadn't cleaned up his act yet. He was born again, but he wasn't acting on what the Spirit was saying to him. Instead, he was acting on wrong thoughts. They were deep thoughts, they were, but they were deeply wrong thoughts. And so that he could repent of them. The heart was not right. Many times our heart is wrong. If our thoughts, the depth of our thoughts are not coming from in agreement with the Spirit. Psalm 69, 32, the humble shall see and be glad, and you will seek God. Your hearts shall live. Your soul shall live. This is what we really want. Our spirit's already alive. But what we really want is to submit our soul to our spirit. The heart of our soul needs to be cleansed by the heart of our spiritual being so that we can live. John 12, 27, now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. What was troubled? His soul. Jesus had a heart of his personal being and he had a heart of his spiritual being. 
Now, he always did the Father's will, which meant that his soul always obeyed his spirit. Now, here he was coming to his great temptations at the end, which were probably more intense than his temptations at the beginning. The pressure was intense. His soul was troubled. In Luke 22, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in verse 42, it says, he prayed and he said, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, this is the first time where you see Jesus expressing a will of his own separate from the Father's. There was so much pressure that that pressure was beginning to divide the soul and the spirit. His soul was troubled. And yet, the possibility of the salvation of our souls was in the balance right then. He was being pressured. He was being vexed. He, his soul, did not want to undergo what he knew was about to happen. Yet he said, not my will, not the will of my soul, but the will of your spirit. And Matthew, beginning in uh, chapter 26, verse 39. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he went back to the disciples. Then verse 42, again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he went back, found the disciples sleeping, went back Prayed again, verse 44. So he left them, went away again, and prayed a third time, saying the same words. So for three hours, he prayed the same words. If this cup can pass from me, my soul is troubled. I'm vexed. I'm pressured. But not my will, your will. So for three hours, there was a division of soul and spirit with Jesus. A division in order for judgment. And he was judged righteous because when those hours were done, he came out submitted to the will of the Father. His heart was submitted to the heart of the Father. Our salvation was weighing in the balance probably more than ever before or ever after while he was in Gethsemane. Gethsemane literally means the place of the wine press. While he was there at Gethsemane, it was like he was a grape in the wine press being pressed and squeezed. And you know, he, he was under such pressure that he sweated literal drops of blood. What was the pressure about? It was the pressure between what he wanted to do and what the Father wanted to do. But yet, he made the Father's will his will, and he forced his heart into the heart of the Father. His soul was troubled, but he was humble. If we're humble, then our heart will live, our soul will live. In James chapter 5, verse 20, it says, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, saving a soul from death is not 
getting them to confess Jesus as Lord. That's just the beginning of the salvation of our soul. When we confess Jesus as Lord, then we receive salvation in light of eternal life. In Acts chapter 2, in verse 41, it says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. It doesn't say 3,000 souls were saved. Now, we've added that terminology to Scripture. And we may have a campaign, and we may say, well, today, you know, a thousand people gave their lives to the Lord, and that would be accurate. But if we say, today, a thousand souls were saved, that would be inaccurate. Because none of us is in a position to judge the salvation of a soul. Jesus alone will decide that at the Bema, at the judgment seat. But if we convert a sinner, we can save a soul from death. It's just as important for us to divide soul and spirit as it is for us to understand when we're talking about heart. Is it this heart meaning the seat or the core of our personal life or the core of our spiritual life? Soul and spirit are not interchangeable. Many people think they are. So therefore they say so many souls were saved. But in reality, they were born again. Their soul was not born again. Their spirit was born again. Because they received Holy Spirit. Now, our job is to do as Jesus did, which is to submit our will to His will. And in that process, we are having our souls saved. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we're His workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right. We're saved by grace through faith. But it's past tense. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. What's saved? Our spirit is saved. We have eternal life through the Holy Spirit. But we have a promise of an inheritance which comes to us as individuals, which is our soul. And we are saved for, or the word is ace, which is unto good works. We're not saved by the good works. We're saved unto the good works. But God has prepared them for us for a reason. It's in accomplishing the good works that he has prepared for us that we place ourselves in a position to allow His grace to save our souls. It's the same process as when we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We confessed Him as Lord and believed God raised Him from the dead, and we were saved. With the mouth, confession was made unto salvation, and with the heart, we believed unto righteousness. Okay? We did not confess and receive the salvation because we earned it. Our confession just put us in a position to receive the blessing. So now that we are saved, past tense, we still, by walking in grace, by not seeing things according to the flesh, but by walking by the Spirit, put ourselves in a position to do the good works that God has foreordained, He has prepared for us, and by doing those works, we place ourselves in a position of salvation of our soul, of converting our soul 
putting our will into his will. The works don't save us. The works put us in a position to receive the salvation of our soul. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, he was writing to Christians. They were already saved. When he wrote to the church in Ephesus, he says, You have been saved. When he wrote to the church in Corinth, he says, To those who are being saved. What's the difference? Why is it that the church in Ephesus had been saved and the church in Corinth, they were being saved? We have to discern heart. We can divide between soul and spirit and we have to here. So in Ephesians, when it says you have been saved, past tense, it's got to be in the category of the spirit. When he wrote to the Corinthians, he said, who are being saved, it has got to be in the category of the soul. Because we are saved in our spirit, but we are being saved in our soul. In James chapter 1, picking it up in verse 18 of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. It doesn't say which has saved your souls, but it can and it is able. Receive that engrafted, that implanted into our heart. Now it's already in the heart of our spirit, but as we receive it into the heart of our soul, the heart of our personality, the heart of who we are, when we change and become like the image of Jesus Christ, when we put our will under His will, when we submit our will to His will, we receive with meekness the implanted Word. And that is able to save our souls. Do we save our own souls? Absolutely not. But do we receive the implanted Word? Yes. It's the implanted Word that saves our souls. But we, by choice of will, receive the implanted word, and that implanted word saves our souls. So in James chapter 2, verse 20, where it says, But do you not know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Literally, faith without works is barren. Now, we hear that verse many times, and other verses similar, in light of salvation, of eternal life. But can our eternal life be dependent upon our works? No. So when James says faith without works is barren, the category is not the salvation of our spirit, it's not our eternal life, but the context is the salvation of our soul, the exchanging of our life for his life, which can't even begin until we have eternal life. It can't begin until we've been saved in our spirit. Then we can begin the process of receiving the implanted word and the salvation of our soul. Now Martin Luther, whom you know was the great man of God, who brought back an understanding of the Apostle Paul's teachings that were saved by grace through faith, not of works. And of course, today we take it for granted, but it was revolutionary in his day. 
And it began the Reformation, the changing of the way we saw salvation. We're saved by grace through faith, not of works. That was revolutionary in those days. It still is to many people. But Martin Luther didn't have much respect for the book of James, and he called it an epistle of straw. Understandably, because when he read it, he only saw salvation by works. But what he did not look at and what he did not understand was the difference between spirit and soul. And when the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans that we're saved by grace through faith, he was speaking of our spiritual salvation. When James was writing, the context is the salvation of our soul. There is no contradiction when we use the Word of God as a sword which divides between soul and spirit. And we have to understand they're not the same or what would there be to divide? It's not dividing spirit. It's not dividing soul. It's dividing soul from spirit. So, by understanding the book of James in light of the context of the salvation of our soul, of the changing of our nature to his nature, obeying Jesus Christ, submitting our will to his will, doing the things that he would do, then we can say, we will show you our faith by our works. Because faith without works is barren. It's not talking about our salvation of eternal life. It's talking about the salvation of our soul, which is the process that we're undergoing right now of having Christ formed in us. Now, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. As we eat spiritual food, as we submit to the word, as we put on the mind of Christ, as we allow Christ to be birthed in us, in our soul, as he's already been born again into our spirit, it changes us. We begin to grow thereby. As we grow, we begin to change what we do. In 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He has begotten us. That's past tense. He has begotten us unto a living hope through the resurrection from the dead. When we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, in God's eyes, we were raised from the dead with him. We received the spirit of the resurrection, which saved us and gave us eternal life now, not as a promise only, but as our life now. But with that came the promise of an inheritance. But it's ahead for us. It's not guaranteed that we're going to attain it, but if we stay faithful, we will. We're saved to a hope, to an inheritance which is uncorruptible, undefiled. Jesus said, moth and rust cannot corrupt it. It doesn't fade away, but it is reserved in heaven for you. There are good works that you are destined to walk in. You have a destiny. 
What does the word destination mean? It's a place that you're going to. So when we see in Scripture that we're predestined, it doesn't mean that God chose whom was going to be saved and who wasn't going to be saved. What it meant was He knew that everyone that was going to be saved would have a destination, and He was preparing that for them so it would be ready for them when they arrived. And reserved in heaven for us is a destination. But it's for those who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. Now, what's this salvation? Is this talking about those, that salvation which comes when we're begotten of the Father? Or is this the salvation that James was speaking about, the salvation of our souls? Since this is future, it has got to be faith for salvation of our souls. Ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness, that's the word dokumon, we've looked at similar word for approval or trial. That the genuineness of your faith, the trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, testing by fire. What is it speaking of? Right now it's like as a fire. In that day it will be the fire when Jesus is revealed at the time of the judgment of those who have confessed Jesus. There's that where our works are going to be tested. That's the testing of our soul. That's the testing of if we've lived, if we've done our works for Him. Our works will be judged and the wood, hay, and stubble will be burned. And the gold, silver, and precious stones come unto me and buy of me gold that's been tried in fire already, Jesus said. Verse 8, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So we see this faith that he's speaking of is the salvation of our souls. We have already been begotten of the Father. We already have salvation in that we have eternal life. But there's another salvation still in our souls. There's another salvation in our bodies. Figuratively, we were raised in baptism, but none of us has a new body yet as unto His glorious body. But that day is coming. When the dead shall rise in Christ and those that are alive and remain shall meet Him in the air, then we will have new bodies like unto His glorious body. Those that will be raised from corruption unto incorruption. And those of us will be changed from mortal to immortal bodies. The end of our faith. What is our faith for? Once we receive salvation, the salvation of our souls. What we do after we receive salvation in light of eternal life is we want to attain salvation in light of eternal inheritance. That's the salvation of our soul. Our eternal inheritance is tied directly to the salvation of our souls. Our eternal inheritance is tied directly to our willingness to submit our will to His will and say, not my will, but your will be done in my life. 
Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. They searched the scriptures but it was a mystery. They looked. They knew there was something. They knew there was a great mystery. But they didn't know what it was. Even angels desired to look into those things but could not find them because it was hidden. And if God hides it, no one's going to find it until he intends for it to be found. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's the glory of kings to search it out. If he digs it down deep enough, we're not going to find it (laughs) until it's his will. Now the salvation of our soul was not known When Nicodemus went to Jesus, Jesus told Nicodemus that he must be born again. What was a mystery was that once a person became born again, that then they would have time to have their soul saved before the judgment. And that they could bring their spirit into subjection of the Holy Spirit to receive a full inheritance. That they could, by their faith, receive the salvation of their souls. Through the trials which we go through, remaining faithful, being an overcomer, we receive the salvation of our souls. In 2 Timothy 2.15, it says to be diligent, to study, to present ourselves approved, dokomos, to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. We have to rightly divide the word of truth. We need to be able to rightly cut it. But to rightly cut the word of God is only in part to learn how to discern what the scripture is saying as we're learning here. The rules for the scripture interpreting itself are necessary for us so we can know what the scripture says. But to be approved of God, to rightly divide the truth is not just to know what it says, but to apply it correctly. To rightly divide the word to the point that we're approved of God is that we are diligent to the point that we pass the tests. We go through the temptations without giving in to our will, but keeping his will preeminent. James 1, 12 and 13 says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, dokomos, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Does he allow tests? Yes. Does he tempt you? No. Will he give us a way out? Yes. If we take his way out, we are approved. We have passed the test. If we don't pass the test, we may have to take it again. Now God wants us to pass his tests. He does let us study ahead of time. And through scripture, he gives us the answers ahead of time even. He's a good teacher. He's a good instructor and he's on our side. He wants us to have faith and he wants us to succeed. But when the tests come, if we pass the test, we're going to move on to another test. But if we don't pass the test, we're going to have to take a makeup test. 
because we're going to have to pass that test eventually. Now, there's no guarantee that the next time we receive that test that it's not going to be harder. There may be some added questions to it. I think it's better to pass the test as soon as we can, as fast as we can, and try to do it the first time. The old saying is that, that uh, uh, if you can't find time to do something right the first time, you always have to find time to do it right the second time. <laughs> but nevertheless, God does want us to succeed, and He will give us the tests until we pass them. His intentions are that we would pass. And that's how we show ourselves approved unto God, is to pass those tests. And when we do pass them, we receive a crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. What does it mean to love Him? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Let no one say when he's tempted, you're tempted of God. God allows us to go through the test, but he gives us the strength to go through them. We need to look to him just as Jesus was tested and tempted and pressed beyond measure in Gethsemane. Yet he said, not my will, but your will. And he gave in to the will of the Father. But nevertheless, the pressure was so great that it actually separated his will from the Father's will. Well, I don't know about you, but with me, it doesn't take that much pressure to, for me to see the difference. But my job is still the same as his, to bring my will into subjection to his will, to put my soul into subjection to his spirit. In Acts 2.22, Peter preached, Men of Israel, hear the words of Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested, which is the word approved, Apendectomai, from apo and dekuno, the base from these other words. In other words, Jesus was approved by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. How was Jesus approved? It wasn't only that he could read the scripture and read it correctly and interpret it correctly, but that he could rightly apply it and walk it out that before men they could see that he was always doing the Father's will and that it was signs that followed him and indicated that he was approved of God. 1 Corinthians 3, 13, Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test, that's the word dichemonium, the same as back in 1 Peter 1.7, where it says that the genuineness of our faith will be tested by fire. The day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test it, will prove it, will approve it. Each one's work, what sort it is. The work that we do, if it's submitted to the Spirit, it will last the test. It will be approved of God. It'll get the stamp of approval and we'll have a crown of life. In 1 Corinthians 3.13 here, it's the approval of the individual's works. In 1 Peter 1.7, it's the approval of the individual's faith. In James 1.12, it is the approval of the individual himself. These are synonymous. When we come to that judgment of fire, the works that we've done that are submitted to the Spirit will be approved. That is our faith. Faith without works is dead. So therefore, our faith will be approved. But what we do with our faith is who we are. So we ourselves, our soul, will be approved as it's been submitted to the Spirit. This is the goal after we're saved by grace is to continue to be saved by grace. Because we are saved 
past tense in our spirit, but we're being saved in our soul and we will be saved in our body. So we are saved and we're being saved and we will be saved depending on the category that we look at of spirit, soul, or body. In Luke chapter 3, verse 16, John answered saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with the fire. Remember, Acts 2, 3 says, then appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. See, we have the opportunity now to be judged now. It says if we'll judge ourselves now, we won't be judged with the world. If we'll judge ourselves now, bring ourselves into submission, be approved of God now by our faith, bring our works, then our person will be approved and it will be as going through the fire, which doesn't hurt near as much as the fire. <laughs> The baptism of the Holy Spirit is like as a fire. It's a type of the baptism of fire to come. We were saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves, not of works. It's the gift of God. We are being saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves, not of works. It is the gift of God. And we will be saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves, not of works. It is the gift of God. God gives grace to the humble. The Spirit is able to save your souls by grace through faith. We cannot save ourselves. If we will allow the Holy Spirit to try our souls now, they will, in a figure, have been submitted to the trial by fire now. And our works will most assuredly stand when they are tried by fire later. This is a great salvation. This is something that even the prophets of old could not foresee. This is something that the devil, now that he knows about it, wants to keep us from receiving the blessings of a joint inheritance with Jesus. It's available, but only to those who are willing to overcome. Only to those who are willing to submit their will to his will and to be approved. 1 Peter 5, 5, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive one to another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. This is the process that we're in. It's a submission. It's a yielding of our will to his will under his hand to cast our care. We're going to have cares. We're going to have trials. We're going to have tribulations. They even come to people who aren't saved, believe it or not. <laughs> but when we go through them for the sake of Christ and stay faithful to him, we receive salvation. It comes by grace through faith. It's not of works, but it, yet it's our works that put us in a position to receive it. 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8 says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. King James Version says, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me 
on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. <laughs> A crown of righteousness to those who keep the faith, stay faithful in the race. How do we do this? By loving his appearing. Now, there was a time in my life when we regularly would talk about loving the return of Christ and that we would receive the reward of the crown of righteousness which would come to all those that loved his return. And I thought for many years that I was going to be rewarded for loving the fact that he was going to return and expect him daily. And I thought that I was going to be rewarded because of the fact that I believed he could come back and so I'm, I might want to be ready. <laughs> but that's not really the case. Matter of fact, you might be interested to know that there's not one verse in the Bible that mentions the return of Christ. So how would I be rewarded for believing in the return of Christ if it doesn't speak about it? Now, <laughs> now that I've said that and shocked you, <laughs> do I believe that the Lord is coming back for His church? Yes, I do. But you know, there was a time in my life when I was taught that once Jesus left and he sat down at the right hand of God, that we were alone. And so therefore we have the Bible, which takes the place of the absent Christ. Now that's a dangerous teaching. I didn't recognize it as such because I did love the word, but you become a person who worships the word then. Because if that's your Lord, if Jesus is truly absent... Your intentions may be good, but what you manifest won't necessarily be the fruit of righteousness. You see, Jesus did go. And the fact that we believed that he needed to return indicated that we believed he was not here. Obviously, if you're here, you don't need to return. And if you need to return, you can't be here. One day, the Lord spoke to me. And he spoke audibly. And the words he said were these. The hope of the return is a false hope. It shocked me. Because I'd based my life on a belief that I was going to be rewarded for looking to his return. That's the way I interpreted 2 Timothy 4.8, that we would be receiving a crown of righteousness to all those who loved his appearing. That word appearing is the word unveiling or revelation, as we see in the book of Revelation. That's his appearing. It's the book of his appearing. It's the book literally of his unveiling. I'd like to look at the book of Acts, uh, beginning in chapter 1. And in verse 8 he says, But you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, he went up, and behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now doesn't that say he left and he's going to come? Now what does the next verse say? Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Now, We've established that the word return is in God's vocabulary. <laughs> he uses it in verse 12. However, that's not the same word as it is in verse 11. 
Here's what happens. Jesus is there. He says, go to Jerusalem and wait for me. The Holy Spirit is going to come, so go wait. He goes up into heaven, and there they stood looking at him. Now, I would have been doing the same thing. <laughs> I would watch him go up, and after he was out of my sight, I would probably still be standing there with my mouth open. That's exactly what they were doing. When the, the men in white apparel came and said to them, Why are you standing here gazing into heaven? This same Jesus whom you've seen leave is going to come again. Not return, but come. When John wrote to the seven churches, he wrote down what Jesus said to each of those churches that, that I come quickly. And he came to those churches in their day. I know there's a belief that what he was saying was that he was going to judge them in the future. But God doesn't judge churches in the future. He judges individuals in the future. God doesn't judge nations in the future. He judges individuals in the future. God doesn't judge cities in the future. He judges cities now. Because cities don't have an eternity, so they must be judged now. Nations don't have an eternity, so they must be judged now. Churches don't have an eternity, so they must be judged now. Individuals have an eternity, so they will be judged later. So when he said to the church in Ephesus, Behold, I come quickly, he meant it. And he came then. So you see, when Jesus raised up into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God, he still has been coming to his church. Even though there is a time when he's going to come for all of us, he still, through the Holy Spirit, comes to us. Sometimes individually and sometimes corporately. But by believing that he needs to return, saying that he's not here now, it's a dangerous belief. It does not say here that we will be rewarded with the crown of righteousness to all who love his return. To all those who love the hope of his return, but who love his appearing. To love his unveiling. Yes, there's a day when it's going to be totally unveiled to us. But what does it mean to love his appearing? To love his appearing is the great hope. The great hope is not in the day of his appearing, but in what you have laid up for the day of his appearing. The day of his appearing is that thousand year reign. It's when we're going to either use or not have an inheritance. The devil believes that the Lord will come and he will not be rewarded for that belief. For those of us who love his appearing, we are the ones who believe that in that day we will be rewarded for what we do now. So therefore we walk in faithfulness now, submitting our will to his will, those that are on course so that we can finish the course. That keep the faith. You're saved by grace through the faith that you keep. If you love his appearing, he may come to you. But he's definitely coming for all of us. If we love his appearing, we will keep his commandments. We will stay faithful. The hope of eternity is not a desire for Christ to gather the saints together nor is it the knowledge and belief that he will, nor is it the anticipation that he may come at any moment. 
It is having the belief that you will spend forever with the Lord so vital in your heart that you are willing to base your life on this reality and lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven and not upon earth. That is the hope of eternity. When the Apostle Paul said, I have finished my race. You see, you have a race. You have a course that you're on. Your course is made up of the good works which were foreordained for you to walk in. When it talks about he has prepared those for us in Ephesians 2.10, no one else has the exact same course or the same good works to accomplish. You see, we all have to start the race by confessing Jesus as Lord. But the salvation of our soul is accomplished by obedience to the course that the Lord has prepared for us, for each one of us, because each one of us is an individual. In Galatians 3, 2 and 3, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Of course not. Their works could not make them perfect because they were works of the flesh. But we are being perfected by the works of the Spirit. When we obey the Spirit, then the works that we do are not works of self-righteousness, but outworkings of the righteousness of God that's in us. We are not being saved by our own works. We are placing ourselves in a position for the Lord to save our souls by the faith shown forth in our obedient works. 1 John 1, 7 through 9. But if we walk in the light as he is the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus is the only one who can cleanse us from sin. He is the only one who has cleansed us from sin. And he is the only one who is cleansing us from sin. And he is the only one who will cleanse us from sin. Ephesians chapter 5, we've looked here before. Verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her, the church, with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. When Jesus went through that pressure and came to the cross, laid down his life, but then he was raised in glory. We, in the same figure, come to the cross, lay down our lives in order to come into the glory. It's by coming to that place of submitting ourselves totally to the will of the Father that then he can raise us up in glory, that then we can be perfected and be without spot or without blemish. Christ must do the cleansing now if we will yield to him or later if we will not yield to him now. John 13, 8 says, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now, when Jesus said that to Peter, he was referring to the washings of the priesthood. 
to the preparation of the priesthood in the Old Testament. In Exodus 29 and verse 4, and also in chapter 40, 12 through 15, was a washing where upon entering the priesthood, the priest would be then washed from head to foot, almost scrubbed his skin off. But after that, in the course of his priestly duties, he would get soiled, he would get dirty, especially at the sacrifice, the place of sacrifice. But he would go to the brazen laver and he would wash himself daily. But that washing was just for his hands and feet. He would never again receive that ceremonial washing from head to foot. That represented salvation. But the washing at the brazen laver represented asking for forgiveness and receiving forgiveness of sins after salvation. So when Jesus spoke to Peter and said, I want to wash your feet, Peter said, oh no, you can't wash me. He said, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. He was saying, if you don't ask for forgiveness when you sin, you can't have a part, an inheritance with me. And let's continue reading. 13.8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Speaking of Judas, when Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet, that's the Greek word nipto. It's the same as in Exodus chapter 30, verse 19, when it talks about the priests going to the brazen laver. It's those washings of their hands and their feet which were soiled in the course of ministry. The washing that happened after the ceremonial total washing. But when Jesus said to him in verse 10, he that is washed, past tense. New King James says bathed, past tense. That is the Greek word luo. And that is the same as we read in Exodus chapter 29, 4, 40, and verse 12. Speaking of the complete washing upon entering the priesthood. In Exodus 12, you read the record of the Passover lamb and that they were cleansed by that blood. And in a sense, they put the blood of that Passover lamb on the doorpost and the lentil. In a sense, when they put the blood above and on the sides, they were, without realizing it, making the sign of the cross. And that at the cross where he shed his blood, we were washed in his blood. And you're only washed in his blood once, and that was good enough for all time. And like Jesus said, hey, if you've been washed once, that's good enough. But if you don't come back and allow me to wash you with the washing of the water of the word, when you sin, then you'll have no part in me. It does not mean you haven't been washed, that you've not been saved. But what it means is you will not have an inheritance because you have not come back and submitted your will to his. And when you've done your will and not his and by sinning, we need to recognize that and ask for forgiveness and come back to him. In a sense, coming back to the cross, not that you can get saved again, not that you can have the blood to go through that uh, washing of the blood again, but you're calling on the power of that covenant, of the blood covenant, and saying, because of that covenant, 
I want these sins washed away. And by the washing of the water of the word, the brazen laver, who is Jesus, will wash away our sins daily so that we can be approved of God and receive the end of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. Amen.